0: I think I've told you this before, but um, my family is uh, quirky, and I'm sure many of your families, when you get together for family traditions, it's quirky, and um, my family's no different. Um, at different points, my wife will look at me and my sisters and my mom and dad doing something, and she'll look at me like, you guys are absolutely crazy, and, and in some sense we are, um, and yet I know she does things with her family also that seem kind of crazy, well, one of the little quirks of my family is I, I grew up with um, all of these little figures of speech, which as a young child I didn't understand, but I came to understand them. Like my mom saying, well, we'll be there in two shakes of a lamb's tail. And a little kid, you're like, what the heck, two shakes, lamb's tail? Another one that my, 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 my relatives would often use when they were confronting an impossible situation is, and they'd say this, is you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Have you heard that before? I know a kid, that sounds strange, like silk what, out of a sow's what, you know. Um, but the logic of the, of, of the figure of speech, when you think about it, yeah, it kind of makes sense, you know, that you can't make a silk handbag, you know, silk, soft, expensive, wonderful, out of a pig's ear. No matter how hard you try with that pig's ear, that sow's ear, boil it, stretch it, tan it, bake it, whatever you can do to it, you cannot change a zow's into a silk handbag. It's an impossibility. So that's kind of where that figure of speech came from, and I've found that I've picked it up over the years, these crazy little uh, figures of speech. And, and you know, when I was thinking about this passage of Scripture, that figure of speech came to mind because I think it applies. That when it comes to a biblically defined moral change in a person's heart, that is biblically defined in a way that's not... Um, the idolatry of the self, that that kind of moral change or transformation in a person's heart that then shows itself in action and behavior is an impossible task for you and for me. It's easier to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear than to actually turn a sinful heart into a God-centered saint. It's an impossibility, an actual impossibility. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I was reminded of that um, in my college years when in an American literature class, we were required to read Benjamin Franklin, his autobiography, actually. And uh, some of you, everybody here knows Benjamin Franklin. Maybe you've read his little book on virtues. Well, he was one of those guys that at some point in his life decided he was going to morally perfect his life. And, and so he had this kind of code of, of virtues that he was going to try and master like temperance and silence and order and frugality are just a few of them. And he tried and he tried, and yet in his autobiography there is this moment of honest reflection on his attempt to morally reform his life, and and it's worth quoting. He wrote, It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, that's what's inside, custom, it's kind of our culture, or company, that's peer pressure, so within, without, and so forth, I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into as I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong. I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. Didn't understand why he couldn't just choose to do what's right. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took advantage, took the advantage of inattention. In other words, start paying attention on it, and something else would pop up. Inclination, that's what's inside, desires, inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. It's a pretty amazing revelation for a guy who never believed in Jesus as the Messiah. That at times what was inside overpowered what he knew to be right. And discovered that you can't make a saint out of a sinner. That is, you cannot, we cannot in our own strength morally perfect ourselves. You can't make a silk purse out of a sows ear. You know, this is probably a pretty good paraphrase of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 which I understand or interpret as life under the Mosaic law, apart from the gospel. That is, before Jesus. You can hear this Franklin kind of theme in what he writes here. Life under the law, apart from gospel. He writes, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And it's so similar to Franklin. It's like the whole inclination was too strong for reason. He knew, but he couldn't do it. Paul's saying here, I I knew what I was supposed to do. At some level, I wanted it, but this thing inside just kept sending me a different direction. That's the, you can't make a silk purse out of a saddle. You can't make to turn. A sinner into a saint, that as hard as we try, you and me, to morally perfect ourselves and make ourselves more holy, we cannot accomplish it. But the good news is that Jesus came, He lived, He died, He rose again, and then gave us His Spirit to do what we could not do. That is, the gospel alone, the good news of what Christ has done and what he offers us, alone is a means to this inner moral transformation of the heart. That it is possible, but it's possible only in Christ and Christ alone. And that is this, precisely the point, the main point that Paul argues in these five verses in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read it for you. He writes, "Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. I can hear or read um, Paul's deep concern. He's kind of got this blunt, blistering tone about him, and it's not because he's mean. It's because he's so, so intensely concerned about the people, the church that he gave birth to or that he, that he preached at and that he formed. He's concerned about the children of the Lord because they're getting it wrong. They're thinking at some point, after they had experienced the spirit, they thought that they could go on in their own flesh to morally perfect themselves, and that's why he's writing this. And his argument consists of six questions, rhetorical or, or, or what I think of as just a powerful, little potent little questions. And, and really, they, they boil together to, to make one, one main point. And it's an argument from their own experience. One of the first questions he asks them has to do with what they saw in his preaching. When he says, oh, you, you know, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. That is when Paul came and preached that the very center of his preaching was the crucifixion of Jesus. So they heard in his verbiage, or they saw in his declaration, they saw Jesus crucified. On their behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous, the substitute. And that served as the center of Paul's preaching because it's there in the death of Christ and the subsequent resurrection that we're offered everything. Where people experience acceptance by the Lord and full forgiveness by the Lord, reconciliation with the Lord, sonship, adoption, hope beyond life and, a, and the promise of a new creation. And the, his sense here is that he preached that and the people saw through his declaration the crucified Son of God on their behalf, and they believed. And in that belief, they experienced the power of the Spirit in their lives. And he's asking them the question here, part of his argument, this experience you had when you believed that message of the cross and you experienced by faith the Spirit within Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's asking them to analyze their own experience. In other words, Galatian people who were largely Gentile, non-Jewish people, were you circumcised? Which is a Jewish thing? It's part of the law? Or you're doing your best to keep the Ten Commandments at the time when Jesus was preached and you believed and experienced the Spirit. Was it on the basis of you doing those good things? And the answer would have to be no. We weren't doing any of those things when when the the gospel was preached and Jesus was held up as crucified on our behalf and the Spirit came. We were in a lost state when we, 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 we heard and we believed and then we experienced the Spirit. I mean... Many of you can relate. You look back to your own experience. Unless you grew up in the church, in which case that change might have been more subtle, which you can't really point at before and after, which I know some, that's the case. Others who came to faith later in life with kind of a going one direction, then boom, God sends you a different direction. You look back at that point. When you first heard the gospel preached of what Jesus did for you, that he loves you even as a sinner and that he calls you to trust in him, and you're forgiven, and then what you experienced when you you did that simple act of of mustard-like faith and saying, yes, I believe. Wasn't there a sense of profound joy in knowing you're forgiven, of knowing you're loved, of knowing that you don't have to fear death anymore or fear judgment? Can you look back and say, wow, yeah, I, I do remember that. Let me ask you, was it because you were trying to accomplish moral perfection in your life? Was it because you were going through the Ten Commandments that you experienced that? No. And that's essentially Paul's argument, the first part of it. You look back. Was it based upon your attempts at moral perfection or was it based upon the simple fact that you trusted in the message and the Spirit came alive in your life? And that's the right answer. That is the right answer. And that's kind of part one of his argument. I'm only, I'm only drawing out two parts this morning. So his basic point here is we first experience the Spirit of God based upon our trust in Christ, not our poor moral performance. That's the beginning of the Christian life. Then he takes his argument farther and pushes to the main point, which is another question. Okay, so you began by the Spirit, regardless of your relationship to the law or your attempts at moral perfection. Now in verse 3, are you so foolish... Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is, flesh is shorthand for human effort. And he kind of reiterates or recaps his basic argument in verse 5. It says kind of the same thing. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you presently and works miracles among you, present tense, do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? What's the basis of the Spirit's continued work in your lives? Did it begin with the Spirit and then shift to your own human power? Which is what you're doing. If you think that somehow you start with Jesus, start with the Spirit, but then you're left to perfect, grow, mature, based upon your own feeble powers of will. you're saying that's inconsistent. You don't start with the Spirit and complete or grow in the flesh by your own human Effort. And yet, that's exactly what the Galatian Christians were doing, and dare I say, many Christians even today do. That we, when it comes to evangelism, or when it comes to the beginning of the Christian life, we love to emphasize grace that's free. That is, Jesus paid it all, man. Trust in him. That's all you need to do. He paid it in full. Trust in him. So we emphasize the gospel on the front half, but oftentimes then when we bring them in the doors of the church, in order to grow them, the emphasis in the center becomes command. This is now how you must live. And it becomes the center. It becomes the hammer. It becomes the all-too-important theme. And by implication, it teaches people that we are perfected by keeping a bunch of good moral even biblical directives but it shifts the weight of our lives upon our own will and we find ourselves for all practical purposes living back under the law and it depletes God's people of strength is there a place for rules, Is there a place for moral directives and commands? Yes. But they're the result and the outworking of the gospel, not part of the gospel itself. Moreover, our tendency with those things is to rely upon them and rely upon our ability to do them. Rather than relying upon the work of Christ and relying upon the Spirit of God that takes the gospel and makes it work. The best that I think moral commands, even in Scripture, can do, they can tell us when we're wrong, and they can kind of give us a direction that the Holy Spirit can take us, but it will not take us there. Reliance upon Christ, their focus was Jesus crucified and resurrected, and their reliance was to be upon the Spirit of God. Or let me put it a different way. This is, again... Oftentimes, on the front end, when a person's not a believer, we emphasize what God has done for us in Christ. And you come into the church, and we emphasize all too regularly how much then we must do for God, but strength is found here, so that we can go here. Think about this for a moment. I mean, the foolishness of thinking that we begin one way, and we continue a different way. Begin by the Spirit, and think about this. The Holy Spirit, he hovered over the dark waters of our planet. And he said, let there be light. And, and out of that, and out of those six days of creation, the seventh he rested, blossomed all of the beauty and the life of this planet. That's how powerful he is. Galaxies were born because of the power of God's Spirit moving upon on the earth into the cosmos. Now, can you imagine? It's like, okay, you started. I mean, the Holy Spirit hovered over our dark, our dark hearts. He said, let there be light. And there was a new birth in the heart that is an immeasurable miracle. That we'd actually come to believe in a God that we cannot see who gave himself for us on the cross. He said, let there be light. and We came to life. Now imagine thinking that, okay, we've moved on from the mighty spirit of Christ and now we're going to depend upon the feebleness of our own human effort. You know, that's like going from the power of the sun to the power of a watch battery. Can you imagine us deciding as a human race, we're going to block out the sun and we're going to plug all of civilization into a nine volt battery. You'd say, that's utterly foolish, it's stupid, it's preposterous. Yeah, that's why he's saying this. Are you so foolish? You started with the Spirit of God, bringing you to life, and now you're going to depend on the feebleness of your own flesh to keep some commands. Foolishness. How we begin is how we continue. What started our life in Christ is what continues, grows, and perfects. Our life in Christ. It doesn't change. That's his point. It simply does not change. That is, not only do we begin, but to put it in principle, we continue to experience the perfecting work of the Spirit based upon faith in Christ, not our moral performance. It's it's as we, you know, fix our eyes on the Lord, as Hebrews says, right? Fixing our eyes on not the rules, and not how well we're doing. Those are all very eye-focused, personally inward-focused. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. As we do that, the Spirit lifts us up on wings like eagles, and and He's the one who empowers, changes, and perfects life. That's, That's the only way Because Jesus is the only one who can take, you know, a sow's ear and make it into a silk purse. The only way. And that's where our confidence needs to be, brothers and sisters, is not getting our focus wrong. Of recognizing the main aim for you and for me and for this church is to keep Jesus front and center as the all-securing, all-satisfying, all-sufficient one knowing that his spirit in us is going to take us where we need to go. And he will be the enabler to actually live out what the rest of the scripture tells us to do. It comes down in very simple terms to what Paul said in Philippians 1, six. The only other place in the New Testament where the two verbs begun and perfected, at least in Greek, are found together. Where... He shows us the bedrock of his confidence, where he says, I am sure of this. He says, He's not saying, I, I think maybe this is going to happen. He says, I am sure of this, that he that is the Lord who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's no contingent language there, like he may or he might or he should says, I'm sure he will. And that's our resting point of looking to the son and knowing that he is the one who is going to change us. He's the one. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And as we rely upon that, as that becomes a reality in our lives, our lives change. That's the truth. I mean, some of us in here need to relax a little bit in a sense. You're trying so hard, and you're not getting anywhere, in large measure because you're making the Galatian mistake. You started with grace, but then you're trying to run in flesh. And our Christianity and our thought life and and, and our theology has to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Here's a parable um, that suits this. I'll close with it. a little sunflower growing in a garden. This is the littlest of all the plants. And it looked up and it saw a beautiful rose and saw a beautiful lily, tall, gorgeous, glorious. And the little sunflower looked at them and he said to himself, I, I want to be tall and I want to be glorious like the lily and like the rose. So he started asking around the other garden plants, like, what, what can I do to grow big and tall like the lily and like the rose? the dandelion said to the little little sunflower said well you know what if you stretch yourself out each day like this you stretch yourself out every day then you know what you're going to grow big and tall just like the rose and like the lily and so the little sunflower began stretching each day stretching 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 up toward the sky trying to be big like the rose and like the lily and after trying that days on end weeks on end realized i'm not growing Became depressed, and so he asked somebody else. He asked a little morning flower, he says, What can I do? I want to grow big like the lily and like the rose. And the morning flower said, Well, you know what? If you flap your petals really hard, as hard as you can, you just keep flapping, you will grow big and tall like the rose and like the lily. The little sunflower began flapping his arms as hard as he could, day after day. Finally, exhausted, he gave up in despair. I will never be like the lily and the rose. Finally, a little wise bee came, and he said to the little sunflower, what are you doing? You look so downcast. And the the sunflower said, well, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to be tall like the rose and and like the lily, and and I'm done. I will never be. And the, the wise bee said, foolish little sunflower, flap all you want, stretch all you want. You'll never be tall and glorious like the rose or the lily. One thing you have need of, and that is lift your face and look to the sun. Every morning till evening, you stare at the sun. And so the little sunflower looked up, and he saw something he hadn't seen before, the glorious radiance of something so bright And began staring at the sun. And he lost conscious awareness of the rose, of the lily. He just looked at the sun. And before he knew it, unconscious to his own mind, he grew. And he grew. And he grew. Until he was the tallest of the flowers in the garden. Because he did this one thing. He looked to the sun. And life grew it's no different if we think we're going to get anywhere apart from looking to the sun and trusting in his work so that the spirit will change us then we're going to end up trying to make silk purse out of a sows here and it's not going to happen church that's, that's where we need to be and then watch It sounds counterintuitive, I know. We want to do, do, do. But as you look to the Son and rest in His Spirit and you take in the gospel, it will grow you. You will grow and we will grow and you will grow as we look to the Son. Amen? Lord, may that make that a reality here at this church in our lives. Um, Forgive us for the many times that we take control of our lives through the pursuit of rules rather than the pursuit of Christ. Lord, may your spirit inhabit this place in a way that it has never inhabited it before. And may our confidence in the finished work of Jesus and the power of Holy Spirit be felt like never before. In the name of Jesus and for the sake of his glory, we pray. Amen.